Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Christian Sager. And today we are revisiting one of our favorite, maybe not favorite topics, demons. Yeah, this is... What's what's funny about this is I remember when when you and I first started recording together. Yeah, we at some point said, "Oh, we should do an episode on demons." And I I even have some like preliminary notes that I ran across yesterday for a demons episode. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. And I think early on we kind of decided, "Oh, well, there's not we can't really do just a demon episode." Yeah. And it for a while we kind of didn't discuss demons. But then recently we've had a couple of episodes. We did the exorcism episode, exorcism, adorcism. Yeah. And uh, and here we are talking about demons again, proving that, yes, there is plenty to talk about um, in terms of science and uh, human psychology and demons. So we kind of proved ourselves wrong in that one. Yeah, exactly. Well, today's episode is primarily based on a new study that we got our hands on. And we want to go through it because it's a really interesting look at how the belief in demons, despite whatever religion you Mm -hmm. participate in, the belief in demons may possibly contribute to negative mental health effects. Yes. Uh, And that is especially interesting, given in light of like things that we've talked about related to demonology before, exorcism, obviously. We talked about mental health in that episode, but we've also talked about satanic panic on the show. I think one of the first episodes I did before I was even a host on the show, we did grimoires. Is that right? We're going to talk a little um, bit did, about those well, we today. We did satanic panic before you. Oh, that's and, what and it was. Then we did grimoires. Yeah, today. grimoires was one mm-hmm. of the first ones I did. Yeah. So we've covered a lot of territory with this. If you haven't listened to those episodes, I recommend going back. But John we'll, D is another one. Oh, yeah, yeah. John D. Yeah, yeah. I guess he was technically trying to talk to holy angels, but... That's Uh, true. But a lot of the same texts do get Mm -hmm. referenced in between a lot of these things. Uh, And this is very much grounded in present day, although we will occasionally refer to some, you know, uh, demonic concepts from the past. Right. Uh, And one of the things that I think is uh, especially drawing me to this topic over and over again, and I've mentioned this on the show before, is that I am working on a comic book series that's actually about like the occult and exorcism Mm -hmm. and demonology. So I'm kind of constantly have out of the corner of my eye I'm looking out for new information surrounding these topics. Oh yeah, I mean same here. I'm I've always been fascinated by demons and uh I have a, a few different uh writing projects that have involved them uh, over the years. And uh and and just I think our personal history causes this too. We've yeah. talked on the on the show before about your experience uh, with snow blindness and a supernatural interpretation of that. So, Sort of at yeah, the time, yeah. and then uh, my own experience uh, growing up in the, uh, the the First Baptist Church, and especially during high school, there being some friends who were carrying out quote unquote exorcisms, and there were yeah. tales about demons uh, in at work in the world around us. We go in depth into those stories in the exorcism adorcism episode, and mm-hmm. that's not that old, so I kind of feel like we we shouldn't repeat them here. So mm-hmm. if you're you know they're not necessary to right. understand this episode but we might refer back to them occasionally just as our subjective experience because I think that that is definitely going to be how we, uh, what lens we look at this study through because this study is pretty fascinating. Oh, yeah. Now, as far as specific demons go, uh, we've, we've t- again, we've talked about demons here on the show. Uh, we often dip our toes into the waters of mythology and folklore and discuss a few uh, uh on the podcast, on the blogs, we've discussed just some of the, the following demons, the, the Wendigo, the Wutong Shin, Fox Spirits, Ghouls, Jin, Incubi, Succubi, uh, Buer, uh, Rahu, Lucifer, Bahamut. Uh, we figured, hey, we're, we're, we're going to look at this study. Let's just roll out a couple of additional demons, sort of uh, podcast versions of demon trading cards, uh, <laughs> almost, that you can, uh, you, can, you can appreciate with us before we dive into the study. And Robert's too humble to mention this, but I will mention that most of those that you just mentioned have Monster of the Week entries over on our site, StuffToBullYourMind.com. So if you want to learn a little bit more about those things or just dive down the monster rabbit hole that Robert's created on the site, go head over there. So, all right. So the one that I picked is actually the one that I've been researching the most for that project that I'm working mm-hmm. on. Uh, and this comes from the Lesser Key of Solomon. And there's a, uh, so we've, we talked about this in the Grimoire episode. Lesser Key of Solomon is a, 
uh, a book supposedly containing uh, sort of occult knowledge passed on by King Solomon. But the first section is the Ars Goetia. I think that's how it's pronounced, but I'm not 100% sure. It's it's old-timey, old-timey grimoire talk. Uh, but anyways... The, so basically that first section is, uh, this, it just contains descriptions of 72 demons that Solomon was said to have evoked. He used like a religious magic to summon them and then he confined them into a bronze vessel and then he sealed that with magical symbols. Uh, and then he basically made these demons work for him. So this is a, you know, uh, I guess a bit of mysticism that takes the Bible, stories from the Bible and, uh, transmutes them. So my favorite and the one that I've, I'm really focused on for this project I'm working on is a demon known as Zagan, and he has the rank of king and president. Uh, <laughs> so there's a lot of various ranks in terms of like what how they fit into a hierarchy with one another, all these 72 demons of huh. Solomon's uh, and king and president is pretty much like the highest one. Uh, so Zagan is, uh, he, oh, and we were talking about this beforehand, like they all have various legions, but they're more powerful than one another based on what the number of legions that they command are. And their legions are like lesser demons. Yeah. And this makes me think, surely somebody may have already done this, but this would make uh, the, the demons of the grimoires perfect for trading cars, right. cars especially since you have all of those, uh, fabulous woodcut illustrations of them. Yeah. yeah. Well, the, the, there's the woodcut illustrations from, I, I think somebody did them after the Lesser Key of Solomon was mm-hmm. originally created. But then there's also all of the seals that are in the Lesser Key of Solomon that, like, show the various, like, inscriptions that you're supposed to use in order to seal these particular demons up in this brass canister. Wow, I can I can picture it right now. Yeah. And then, yeah. And then down there Get at the bottom, how many legions do they have? You just <laughs> look on the card. Well, Zagan has 33 legions. He These are also his superpowers. Are you ready? He can make men witty. Okay. He can turn wine into water and water into wine. Okay, that's more impressive. So he's a little Jesus-y there. <laughs> but he can also turn blood into wine. So imagine this. Like, he can turn your blood and your body into wine. That would hurt and probably kill you, too. Yes, that would definitely. <laughs> I mean, if it's a demon doing, I don't know. You, there's so many additional magical questions come into play. There are. Like, does that mean that my body is uh, like a wine-based circulatory system now? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, his other powers are that he can turn metals, any metal, into a coin that are made of that metal. Right. So if there's like gold ore, he can turn it into gold coins. He's just like uh, this, like magical coin making process. Uh, and then the last thing about Zagan that I think is pretty interesting is he takes the form of a griffin winged bull, but then he like eventually turns into a man. So there's like various interpretations of him where he sort of looks like a minotaur with wings. Oh, yes, yes. I think I've seen these before. Yeah. So that's again, I've got some text here from the the actual book itself. It's pretty difficult to read because it's like I said, it's in that old timey kind of writing where it says like the 61st spirit is called Zagan. He is a great king and president and appeareth in first ye form of bull with griffin wings, you know, stuff like that. Um, but yeah, it was basically all the things that I mentioned earlier. It's just a list of his superpowers. This is really like, like if you look at the lesser key of Solomon with a bit of skepticism, Mm -hmm. it's, it's like the official handbook to the Marvel universe. (laughs) Now, one one thing that's interesting about this particular demon, especially in terms of what we're going to be talking about today is that this seems to be very much a wizard's demon uh, in that. Like, there wasn't anything really negative there unless you count turning wine into water. Uh, like if that's the yeah. worst case scenario or possibly the blood in your body. That seems like the most dangerous one. Yeah. But yeah. for the most part, it's this is a powerful entity that a wizard would enter into a careful pact with mm-hmm. and have – if not control over, then at least uh, a lot of guidelines set in place. Yeah, like I imagine like the idea was sort of that because like, keep in mind, there's 71 other demons mm-hmm. like this. Like you would summon one demon first that could create gold ore from copper ore or something like that. Right. Mm-hmm. This is all alchemical. It's very John D. <laughs> and then you're like, oh, but I've got this gold ore, but I can't just spend it. I can't just go to town and drop this, uh, you know, on, on the table at the local bar. I know I'll summons again. 
in uh-huh. and I'll keep him bound in the seal and then he'll turn these all into coins for me. So being a wizard, a demonic wizard was, was, was really kind of like being a project manager. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. funny. That is kind of how the lesser key of Solomon portrays Solomon in a lot of cases. <laughs> yeah. Like at least how he, the way in which he used demons and angels, you know, uh, it's like a recipe book. I like to imagine him doing like a big, um, like, a Google meeting with all of these, everybody's, uh, teleworking in from yeah. whatever layers of the abyss, uh, they're occupying. And he's like, all right, where are we on the progress, progress for this project? Uh, do we have the ore? When are we, when are we actually pressing these into coins and moving on to step three? <laughs> step three is turning his blood into wine. Yeah. <laughs> So if this is an example of a demon that's very much under control, uh, we certainly have plenty of other demons that are out of control. Like this is kind of the, the rich man's demon yeah. versus the, the, the every man's demon. Well, I think, yeah, it's worth remembering, too, that, that like the Lesser Key of Solomon wasn't like a mass-produced book, right? Like there were only mm-hmm. a few copies of this. We talked about this in our Grimoire episode, and they were mainly owned by rich, learned gentlemen. Yeah. So uh, for, for my pick, uh, I figured I might uh, entertain an Eastern demon for the second selection here. And I'm going to buck uh, my recent trend of focusing on Chinese or Indian myth and instead uh, turn uh, to the island nation of Japan. Oh, yeah. They've got some really cool human mythology. So the the Oni is probably the the best known or one of the best known Japanese demons. And you can you can split up split hairs over the definition of demon or spirit or evil spirit, etc. But uh, I think for the most part, the Oni lines up with the demonic definition. And uh, I think it suits our purposes here, since as uh, Carol Rose describes in her book, Spirits, Fairies, Leprechauns, and Goblins, you have two varieties of Oni. First, there's the, the Gaki, which comes from hell and drags souls of the dying down to hell. And then there's also a terrestrial version of the Oni that shifts its shape, assumes human forms to torment specific individuals, and they may themselves be, quote, the distorted souls of women who have died of excessive grief. These are the ones I know mostly from Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. They're in the monster I, manual. I have to say, some of my earliest uh, encounters with Japanese monsters were in the um, the monster manual supplement for, well, I can't remember the name of their eastern uh, scenario. Oh, uh, it, Orient? It was. It was the Oriental yeah, Adventures. It is now, it would now be... Offensive. <laughs> I forget. I have the book, though. Yeah, it was. It wasn't Kuatoa, but it sounded something like it had a K yeah. sound in it. Uh, Character. Ah, there we go. Yeah, and I remember just being fascinated by the monsters in there, and then later l- learning more about you know their actual models in uh, in myth and folklore, and and the the monster manual did a, did a pretty knock up job, I thought, of, of bringing these to life in the game system. Yeah, but the oni was definitely in, in it. Uh, now these particular oni, the the terrestrial ones. They bring misfortune. They spread disease, especially plague. And uh, there's a ceremony, the, the Shinto Oni Yarachi, and uh, this, as well as conversion to Buddhism, can drive the Oni out. Okay. Now, this is in terms of possession, right? Not in terms of like if an Oni, it, like if an Oni is haunting your home or something like that. Or does uh, that also? My understanding it is it's like haunting a home, haunting a region, uh, okay. more or less plaguing an individual or an individual's household. Got it. Okay. Now, in the in the former example, the Gaki, we see a vision of a demon that partially embodies the fear of death, but also seemingly increases it. So you're going to die, yes, but. Also, a terrifying monster is going to drag you to hell as it happens. Surely there's got to be some um, some Japanese horror films that have incorporated the Oni. I guess oh, maybe yeah. we're just not like super um, aware of them. Well, there are a number of Japanese films that deal with the um, the, with the, the, the yokai. Okay. Um, which, you know, broadly categorizes these different monstrous spirits, some more comical than others. Uh, there's uh, – and I, I, want, I want to say there have been a couple of black and white Japanese horror films – Earlier okay. horror films that, that definitely explored this idea of an oni. We gotta we gotta do a, a trailer talk episode based around stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, for those of you who don't know, we do uh, every Friday, well, almost every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, we do a trailer talk Facebook Live episode where Robert, Joe, and I talk about the preceding week's podcasts in relation to movie trailers, basically monster movie trailers related to this. So. I'm assuming we will uh, do something based on demonology in the coming weeks for this one. Now, I want to also drive drive home that, that terrestrial Oni that we mentioned there. 
that's a, a firm Eastern example of a demon that spreads earthly misfortune and can be driven away or defeated via religious practice. Okay, that's important re- related to the study that we're going to talk about today. I know some of you are like, guys, you've been talking about D&D and weird monsters for 10 minutes now. We're, we'll get there. Yeah. But, but yeah, as long as it's an evil supernatural power, it doesn't necessarily have to be codified as a demon per se. Uh, it applies to this study. Right. Like uh, another one real quick uh, from the Japanese traditions and, and from the monster manual is, of course, the kappa. Oh, yeah. The kappa, yeah. the uh, sort of monkey-like turtle creature mm-hmm. with uh, a little indention in the top of its head filled with this water that gives oh, us yeah. its power or is its life force. And it's basically one of those demons, and these exist in, in just a, demons or evil spirits that exist in most folk traditions, hangs out around water, so it's associated with drownings and misfortune related to, to swimming and being working around water. But you can, if you encounter one of these things, the legend goes that you can defeat it by bowing to it, like a nice low bow. Yeah. And then when the kappa bows to you, it will spill the water from its head and lose its power. So it's kind of like a golem, like the way that, like, if you wipe the golem's, uh, the inscription on the golem's head off of it, it, like, becomes inanimate again. Like, if the water falls out, it just kind mm-hmm. of dissipates. Yeah, and, and the thing I love about this is that essentially you defeat the demon by the use of strict Japanese etiquette, which uh, I, I'm going to have to research this more a bit, but I, yeah. I, I'm instantly drawn to that that idea of it. You're not necessarily using religion here to defeat this demon, but this demon may be, be defeated by proper etiquette. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a very proper demon. All right, so we've rolled out a couple of demonic examples here, uh, and now its uh, I think it's about time to move on with uh, discussion of the study. Yeah, so the paper in question here, it just came out in 2017. It's called Demonic Influence, the Negative Mental Health Effects of Belief in Demons, and it's by... Fanho Nai Ni and Daniel V.A. Olson, and they both come out of Purdue University's Department of Sociology. Real brief abstract here, but we're going to really break down this paper. Uh, their research indicates that among young adults, belief in demons is one of the strongest negative predictors of mental health. They also found that belief in demons can lead to lowered mental health. But they also are very clear, and they clarify, lowered mental health itself does not necessarily lead to a greater belief in demons. So if you're uh, if you're depressed, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're more likely to believe that demons exist. Right. And, and in this, and they time and time again in the study, they, they tackled this idea, you know, because you might ask the question, were you, is it really possible that belief in demons leads to uh, ill mental health? Or is it just a situation where someone who already is suffering from some sort of mental health yeah. scenario, uh, they are more likely to believe in demons. They tackle that. And there's a, mm-hmm. there's actually a lot to this study. Like there's some interesting sort of cognitive science to this study as well that I think is really important. Um, you know, we are obviously using the demon framework because it's attractive to us. Right. But I think that this has broader implications as well, just for like mental health in general. Oh yeah. So, all right. You're probably saying, well, who believes in demons? Right. Who who are these people that are affected? Maybe some of you listening are those or and you're thinking, well, I believe in demons and I feel fine, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, but here's some statistics for you. According to Baylor University, they conducted a religion survey in 2007 and they found 54 percent of the United States absolutely believes that demons exists. That is a surprisingly high number to me. I'm I'm very surprised by o- being over half the population. Yeah, it's it's interesting to think that over half the country believes that uh, malicious extra-dimensional creatures actually exist. Though I'm sure there's going to be some variety uh, regarding to what degree they're active in the world, or if it's just a situation where oh well, I follow this religion, be it uh, Christianity or Islam or um, or Buddhism, uh, any or or Hinduism, and you just kind of fall back on the idea that well, there are demons in the text, yeah. demons in the belief system, and therefore I believe in them. I think my assumption was, despite whatever religious beliefs you participate in, mm-hmm. that most people don't actually believe in supernatural evil. But I guess I was wrong. Um, and I think that that's really interesting. And especially, you know, calling back to my experience from when I was a kid and I had mm-hmm. snow blindness and I thought that a demon was coming for me. Uh, 
you know, I guess like I'm not alone. Apparently, like this is a pretty common thing. It's it's more common than it's not. Uh, it, even going so far as they said that an additional 19.5 percent of the population, on top of that 54 percent, think that demons probably exist. So there's like a the, they basically said not at all, maybe or absolutely. <laughs> uh, and so there's more people that think absolutely. And then there's more people that think maybe there's far less people that think not at all. Hmm. Or maybe they're kind of hedging their bets there. I don't know. Maybe. I think it's also really important to remember, though, that historically, the belief in supernatural evil has evoked not only fear, but it's it's been able to evoke death in some people, right? You think about people who were so concerned historically about having curses placed on them that they had, like, a heart attack or something like that, right? Like... This has such a strong foundation in our cultural contexts that, uh, you know, I can see sort of why it permeates so thoroughly. Yeah, I mean, because it goes back, it goes beyond the sort of modern religions. It goes back into very folkloric beliefs. Just the I just as humans are grasping with the chaos of life and the unpredictability of life and then trying to answer why it's happening. Yeah. Uh, you can, it's, it's handy to fall back on explanations of, well, there was a malicious spirit, uh, at the lake. That's why this drowning occurred. Uh, there is a, or there's a demon, uh, in my mind, and that's why I did, uh, this particular atrocity. You mentioned disease earlier with your, mm-hmm. with your Oni example. I mean, disease was blamed on demons and curses a lot. Yeah. You know, so it was, you know, that's why I think that, like, the handbook to the Marvel universe kind of works here, right? Because like demonology was sort of the cultural way that we understood the unexplainable in the world. Yeah. Not that there's people now who are like, why, why was there a tornado that struck down in my backyard? It must've been Thor, right? Like it, <laughs> nobody thinks that, but there is that meticulous kind of record keeping of, of what's going on with these various mythological characters. Yeah. And so much of it does boil down to taking a, a threat, often a kind of uh, ambiguous threat, personifying it as a creature or monster, and then also having a system to drive that monster away. So you're taking, yeah. You, you're taking a threat that is invisible and unpredictable, boiling it down into something like a predatory animal, essentially, that is predictable and defeatable. Yeah. And, and a certain amount of solace, I guess, can come with that, as well as a great deal of anxiety because you've now created a, a worldview in which there are malicious, magical creatures out to get you. And as we're going to find out throughout this study, having such a belief triggers something in our brains that leads us to further negative beliefs that impact us in in not healthy ways. All right. Well, on that note, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to jump uh, even more into the study here. All right. We're back. All right. So let's set up this study. Okay. You've got some notes here uh, specifically about, you know, the evaluation and the costs and benefits of being religious. Yeah. And these are these are examples that the the authors uh, of the main study here point out. So on the opposite end of the perspective, uh, you have uh, the bitter and the sweet, an evaluation of the costs and benefits of religiousness by Kenneth I. Pargament in uh, 2002. And this was a paper that explored whether belief in a loving God had a positive effect on mental health. And uh, the author's work implied just this. So the idea, you know, here is pretty obvious. You you, you bring in this religious worldview where you uh, you believe that there is a loving God looking after you, and that is going to lead to just a more positive experience of reality. Yeah. So they basically they have this literature review where they cite studies, other studies that have been done. These this isn't the first study that's looked at the positive and negative associations with religious beliefs. Mm-hmm. The positive ones include uh, the one that Robert just mentioned about there being a loving God. But then also people have positive mental associations with religion when they uh, attend church when they rate the importance of their religion in their life, when they pray, and uh, if they believe in an afterlife, and then, of course, uh, relating to the first one you mentioned, a secure relationship with God. So mm-hmm. it's not enough to just believe that God exists, but that God, you have a secure relationship with God and God loves you. Yeah, because obviously there are plenty of modes of belief in God 
uh, where God is terrible and terrifying. Uh, you don't have to look far to find that vision of, of the Almighty. And, and, uh, and certainly there have been a number of studies that have attributed negative influence to self-rated importance of religion, particularly as it revolves around belief in your own sinful nature uh, and other factors. Because even in the Christian tradition, you're going to have different models of Christianity that lean more heavily on the idea of a vengeful God or a loving God, on the idea that you're, you, you're weighted down by original sin or you're free of original sin because you decided to follow this particular religious path, etc. Yeah, one of the other things that they found that I thought was interesting is even though prayer has a positive association to it, if you're worried about the frequency of which in in which you pray, like mm-hmm. how much you pray per day, that has a negative impact on people. Um, so, for instance, there could be an uh, association between that and mental illness because people who are already mentally ill might pray more to cope with their difficulties. And there's other studies that have found similar associations with beliefs in the punishing God that you mentioned, obviously and not believing in an afterlife. So mm-hmm. that can cause undue stress as well. Yeah, because the the belief in an afterlife is often brought up as a, as a positive one, right? Yeah. Because it, it would uh, arguably alleviate some of the stress associated with death. You're yeah. like, oh, I'm going to die, but hey, I'm going to be with everybody in the afterlife. It's going to be happy and good. Yeah, it's comforting to yeah. think that, right? This is like basic Maslow's hierarchy of, of needs stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Like that you're, you're, um, secure, basically, that you're safe. And the, like, the idea, um, that these things are sort of forming a cultural, I don't know, safety net for you, right? Uh, is comforting. Yeah, it's crazy how we, we, we build the safety net though. And each of us, to be clear, it kind of builds their own safety net. Yeah. You, you, you may have the basic designs handed to you with varying degrees of detail by, uh, by your particular faith or whoever your sort of faith leader is, officially or unofficially. But you were, you were designing the exact parameters of it based on your, your attention to the details that were given. Yeah. So let's go back to this paper and the negative association part. Yeah, so as far as uh, negative associations go, this uh, Nye Olson paper is the first, uh, apparently, to make an argument for the negative associations of demonic belief. So they're the first to really narrow in on demons alone and say, well, how does this, how does this play into the, the, the positive and, ne- and negative manifestations? And so they employed a, what's called a structural equation modeling system, or SEM, uh, with panel data. And they used uh, the National Study of Youth and Religion, or the NSYR, and they did this to, to show that a belief in demons leads to later changes or declines in mental health. Yeah, uh, and we want to remind you, too, they said they found no evidence to support the idea that poor mental health leads to a belief in demons, right? So uh, demonic belief, though, is a predictor of future mental health issues. But that doesn't necessarily mean that if you're depressed or anxious or, or whatever, mm-hmm. right, that you're necessarily going to go all of a sudden pick up the uh, lesser key of Solomon and be like, these guys are all real. Yeah. Yeah. So and if you're not, if that doesn't make any sense to you, bear with us. We're going to get into more detail about this. So you'll understand how how belief in demons could lead to a decline in negative in, in mental health. So this uh, latest study explores an aspect of uh, what's called ETAS, the Evolutionary Threat Assessment System Theory. And this is the brainchild of Kevin J. Flannelly, senior research, uh, researcher at the Center for Psychological Research at the University of Hawaii. So the idea here is that certain brain structures uh, in the human brain involving the uh, prefrontal cortex, the uh, limbic system, and the basal ganglia develop to assess and respond to threats. This system stands as humanity's evolutionary threat assess- assessment system, ETAS. Uh, so when no clear threat exists, it may fire up anyway, kind of like an autoimmune dysfunction, and this can result in a vast array of anxiety and OCD. Yeah, so this is actually very similar to the theory that we're also going to present in this week's other episode, which is about bats. Totally different topic, but about bats' immune system. There's this theory that their immune system is, is just always on. And mm-hmm. it sounds like this theory for us is that our evolutionary threat assessment system is always on. And it's mental instead of physical. So it seems to be causing us with social anxiety, paranoia, obsessive compulsive disorder, general anxiety. All of these things are manifesting of it, right? So 
what's the upside to this fight or flight warning system constantly being on? I would assume it's alertness, right? Like being aware of your surroundings, situational awareness, that kind of thing. Well, I think you can think of it in terms of a household security system. Okay. Okay. So you have the security system in place, right? And it has a, it's hooked up to the phone line or a cellular system. So if certain sensors are triggered, it will call the authorities or call your, um, you know, an agency that will contact the authorities. Sure. Okay. But you're going to have, but then it depends on where those sensors are, what, how jacked up those sensors happen to be, you know, right. how motion sensitive detectors, they are. Your, yeah. Your door, your window, et cetera. Right. Like, so here's an example that might, I'm going to, I'm going to take this and, and really work with this metaphor. Okay. Uh, I have an alarm system in my house and we have a motion sensor that's in the living room. But anytime we arm the system, we have to specifically enter in a code to disarm the motion sensor in the living room because I've got two dogs and two cats and they just constantly trigger it. Yeah, I've had the same scenario in the past where I had to actually tape up motion detectors in the house to keep animals from triggering. Right. And that's – so if we're looking at this from this metaphor that this is the uh, the ETAS, right, mm-hmm. that, that's, that's almost like a mental health upkeep, right? It's yeah. like you're going, hey, you know what? Yes, that, that sensor is going to trigger when a specific thing goes off, but you need to teach yourself that it's actually not harmful. It's just the dogs and the cats. Right. Or and this all comes down to worldview. And that's the the idea here is that your personal worldview is going to dictate what additional sensors are added to your your personal security system, yeah. as well as to what degree are they 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 amped up. So, you know, obviously the door getting broken in or an, an entry occurring while you have the, the stay at home alarm on, that's going to trigger anybody's uh, system. But uh, do you also have like a crazy uh, motion detector uh, in the living room or a hallway um, or, or or on the porch to, in a way that like blowing leaves or a passing truck is going to set it off? That's kind of the idea here. Yeah. So the, it boils down to two worldviews. And this is how Flannelly mm-hmm. argues it. Uh, and it's it's sort of based around, you know, how risky you feel the world is. So the first worldview is a cynical one. And that's where you think that other people are generally selfish and shouldn't be trusted. The second one is when the world is generally equitable uh, and it's thought to be fair and just. Now, depending on which one of these you lean toward, it could alter the threshold at which you respond to certain perceived threats in your environment. These responses can be both functional and dysfunctional, right? So Flannelly is basically arguing that the equitable worldview is less threatening and raises the threshold to trigger our ETAS systems. Now, for me, I got to be honest, like if I have to choose between those two, I'm I fall into the cynical worldview camp. You know, I wish I could say that I didn't, but I do, you know, but probably based on a combination of nature and nurture stuff, I definitely uh, feel like the world is a selfish place and I shouldn't necessarily trust other people. I know that that's not healthy and Mm -hmm. it's something that I've been working on and will probably continue working on for the rest of my life. But that's how that's I know that that's what sets off my triggers. Well, I think a lot of us do have to sort of juggle those two different <laughs> versions of the world. View, yeah. Right. Because uh, I'm I'm I, in my own mind, I'm often I often find myself sort of the encountering the two butting heads of, you know, you encounter uh, a stranger, say, on the street. And there's uh, there's the temptation to want to view them oh, as an other that could be potentially dangerous, yeah. et cetera. And uh, and then there's the other side that reminds you, oh, this is just a person. This is just somebody probably much like yourself, and people are basically not horrible. Um, it reminds me of when I first moved to the south from Boston. Yeah. Because in Boston, you walk around on the street, you see a stranger, you don't look at them, you look down, you walk past them, and you ignore them, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, here, you see a stranger, they wave to you, they say good morning, they smile at you. And I was, like, freaked out by that at first. I was like, what? what, what do you want? You know, like that was my reaction. And it took me, I've lived here for 11 years now. It's taken me this long to get comfortable with it to the point where I noticed, like I was just in Seattle a couple of weeks ago mm-hmm. and I was walking around on the street and started smiling and saying good morning to people. And they were looking at me like I was crazy. <laughs> well, one thing to keep in mind too here is that when we say the world, the world is basically a good place. The world is basically a bad place. Yeah. There are of course going to be different worlds for any individual. There's often my world and then the other world. So sure. in, in certain 
religious situations. You could be the world within sight, within your own church, within your own faith. And then there is the outside world, or you live in a rural environment. And then there's the other world of the city or vice versa. Oh, totally. That's yeah. something I encounter a lot since I, I grew up in a, in a more rural setting yeah. and I live in a more urban setting. So I encounter people who have the attitude of, you know, distrust the rural environment or don't go out into the country. Yeah. Yeah. You lose your life here in Atlanta. And, and they call the it OTP. Yeah. Yeah. But then you also encounter the same thing, right? Where people are like, Oh, if I go into Atlanta, yep. I'm probably going to die. I've right? absolutely yeah. encountered that. Yeah. I did a job interview once where somebody told me that he specifically never came inside the perimeter to Atlanta because he wanted to just avoid anything to do with the city for basically those same reasons. Hey, this is a total tangent, but I have to ask, have you listened to S Town at all yet? No, I have not. Okay. I think you'd like it. Um, I know tripod month is over, but, and probably if our listeners are listening to us, they've probably checked out S town already, but man, it's good stuff. And it's very much related to this concept of urban versus rural Mm -hmm. identification. Oh, cool. I'll have to check that out. Uh, so the, so the basic idea here again is that uh, a person's beliefs about the riskiness of the world in general affects their ETAS. So in other words, the exact worldview you have can alter the threshold at which the ETAS starts kicking in. Yeah, and it's worth remembering, too, that in many religions, as we talked about, sickness can be viewed as being caused by these demonic forces, right? So Mm -hmm. let's say you've got a cynical worldview and you believe in demonic forces. So you're going to be constantly on high alert that something is being caused by them, right? Demons and evil powers are depicted as the enemy of God or, or the gods, depending on what, you know, particular religion you subscribe to. So it makes sense to hypothesize that if the reverse holds true, since previous research implied that belief in a loving God was associated with better mental health, these guys said we should probably take a look at what belief in supernatural evil does as well. All right. So uh, Nye and Olson, they focused on, again, on the NSYR, the National Study of Youth and Religion. This is a research project uh, directed by Christian Smith, professor in the Department of Sociology at the University of Notre Dame, and it entails uh, uh, 3,290 Americans. Now, you might be wondering why this one, right? Well, they said, quote, because it is one of uh, the few high-quality panel studies with so many detailed questions about religion, questions that are repeated in each wave of the study, unquote. And uh, it also covers a time in people's life when they, uh, quote, experience significant changes in both religiosity and mental health. So a lot of this relates to the expected challenges of growing up, taking on new responsibilities, encountering new stresses, and often experiencing reduced uh, interest in religion. Yeah, so they liked the NSYR because it specifically addresses those concerns for young adults. Now think about it, you know, back to... Maybe some of you are young adults and you're listening to this, but back to when I was a young adult, you know, it's a time when you're more likely to experience changes in your religious beliefs and your mental health. Uh, consider all the stresses of being a young adult, your financial responsibility, the frequent lo- relocation, uh, the resulting weakening social ties as you move away from your friends or your family. Maybe that's not identifiable for everybody listening. Mm-hmm. But for me, that was absolutely the situation. Like I was like I had that kind of bank account where I was living check to check for like probably m- most of my early 20s. Mm-hmm. Um, I did, I hadn't lived with my parents for a long time, and my parents didn't even really have, like, a central location home anywhere that I could go to, much less, like, you know, a hometown with friends and family in it that I felt like was, like, kind of a safe fallback for me, you know? Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of that stress, and I then I think about it, and I'm like, well, this was also probably the beginning of the end for me in terms of religiosity. Hmm. Um, and I say that, but I have to clarify, you know, uh, and I think I brought this up on the show before too, that like, I'm not religious in the sense that I follow like a particular organized religion, but I do have, I guess, spiritual beliefs, you would call them, right? Um, this sounds a little hokey when I'm saying it out loud, but like, I don't identify as an atheist. No, no, I think this is good because I have, I have kind of a similar spiritual trajectory there. I, like I, I, when I look back on, uh, on 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 my life, when I would have lined up with this study, and I think probably my belief in demons uh, was it was probably at its at its high point then, because this was again a time when there were stories of, yeah. of people encountering demons, performing exorcism, uh, this idea of sort of spiritual warfare uh, in Christianity was seemed to be very prevalent at the time. 
at least in the, the circles I was I was moving in. And uh, and since then, like that has changed. So t- today, I'm 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 certainly not an atheist, but I, I I do not believe in the existence of demons or or hell. And I I I feel like it's it's kind of like one is given a a big lunch tray full of items. Uh, yeah. And these contain both uh, edible and inedible religious ideas. <laughs> contains uh, beneficial and uh, and and at times you know, highly destructive religious ideas. And over the course of your life, you you figure out which ones you can get rid of, which ones you can throw in the trash and just keep the uh, the items on the plate that that have a positive effect on your life and your worldview. Yeah. And actually, you know, what you and I are both talking about from our subjective experiences lines up with what they found in the NSYR. Uh, so it's a longitudinal study. It covers mm-hmm. three waves of ages, uh, starting with 13 years old to 17 years old. For me, that was peak demon time. Uh, <laughs> then 16 years old to 21 years old. And then again, from 18 to 24 years old of these respondents. Uh, now, ideally, the guys who authored this paper we're talking about today, they would love a survey that had more data relating to items with depression, right? But yeah. that just wasn't built into this particular study. Um, they did mention, though, that there is another study that, that found that there is a, you know, a common transition to young adulthood that is characterized by a rapid decline in religiosity. Uh, there is also the 2010 National Survey on Drug Use and Health, and that found that 30% of young adults, that's people 18 to 25 years old, reported having had mental illness in the last year. And then people who are ages 26 to 49, that's you and me, uh, were down to 22%. And then by the time you get to 50 or older, you're down to 14% of that population reporting mental illness uh, within a year. So it seems like... And this this kind of lines up with my experience, not only just like as me as an adult and, and my challenges with mental health, but also the people around me that I've mm-hmm. encountered, that the older you get, the easier it gets. I don't know. Easier is maybe like uh, maybe a little bit too like heavy of a term to use, but that um, coping mechanisms come into place. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Coping mechanisms come into place. And uh, and I guess in, in many cases too, the opportunities for major battles with one's, um, you know, particular mental health scenario um, right. come about. They've passed. Yeah. 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 Um, now, in, in terms of coping uh, mechanisms, though, it, it's uh, worth pointing out there have been a couple of studies. Uh, they cite uh, Blaine and, and Crocker, 1995, and then another 2000 study. They present the idea that, that religion can and does serve as a coping strategy during this time for many people. So the core premise here is that belief in a loving God makes the world seem predictable and secure. Yeah, like I was talking about before, this is one of those key phases of human needs if you look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? But if you also have a belief in evil supernatural beings, that makes the world seem unpredictable, insecure, and dangerous. And it leads us to anxiety and stress, just like any similar tangible effects would, right? Think of crime or war or disease, right? Mm -hmm. So... The belief in these, uh, you know, evil beings, whether they're demons or, or, or what have you, uh, w- sort of contributes in the same way that those real world factors do. All right. We're going to take one more quick break and then we come back. We'll jump back into the study. All right. We're back. So in this uh, study, the researchers used uh, the uh, the SEM model, and this treats uh, uh, two variables of mental illness and belief in demons as simultaneously independent and dependent variables. So at its core, their uh, methodology is designed to improve on previous studies that only looked at college students that weren't uh, suited uh, sample-wise for finding causal influence between the religious and mental health variables. So they determined mental illness-based on five observable mental health items. Again, they were kind of limited by the questions in the yeah, study. Yeah, just because this wasn't a study. The survey itself wasn't a survey that they mm-hmm. wrote. They took a pre-existing survey that had pre-existing data. Yeah, they're basically taking a pre-existing body of data and then computing that, crunching the numbers there to answer some questions that they had. Right, yeah. So they looked at depression, sadness, loneliness, misunderstanding, uh, purposelessness, Social invisibility, um, you know, the feeling of being unloved. And they, they left off uh, a sixth area, guilt. Yeah, I remember reading that part there. I, 
it, I wasn't a hundred percent sure why, but I think it was that they didn't feel like there was necessarily a correlation between guilt as it was defined in the survey mm-hmm. and mental health as they were defining it as a negative trait in association with belief in demons. Okay. If that makes sense. All right. So these mental health items were in turn backed up with frequency ratings, one through five, always through never. Uh, demonic belief came to a scale of one to three, definitely, maybe, or not at all. And the researchers also took into account items from the survey related to so-called positive benefits of religion. So uh, angels, afterlife uh, belief, etc., as well as uh, demographic uh, measures. And they all loaded all of this uh, into a program and computed it. Yeah, I mean, we could walk through this, like, incredibly complex mathematical methodology that they mm-hmm. had, but... If you're that interested, go find this paper or talk to these uh, authors. Uh, I'm sure they'd be happy to tell you about it. I don't know necessarily that it's listener friendly for us to walk through equations. Right. We'll we'll just be brief and say this is where the mathematics happens. Yeah. (laughs) And then we get the findings. So the the findings are broken down into four tables of data. And uh, and here's the real take home with a with a lot of uh, caveats about the limits of the survey information and the fact that mental health is a diverse construct. All right. Because that's that's instantly the you know the problem anyone's going to have. And especially if anyone starts saying, oh, well, you know, the, this is just a soft science, et cetera. Uh, the researchers definitely take this into account and say, yes, this is just a this is just a study. We're trying to tackle something that is very difficult to uh, to, to tackle in the form of mental health. But mm. Here's, here's what they, they have to say. Quote, when predicting mental health, self-rated health, an obvious predictor of mental health, is the strongest predictor, followed by feeling close to God. But believing in demons and evil spirits is the next strongest predictor of mental health with an effect size that slightly edges out belief in angels, um, another supernatural belief that is strongly correlated with belief in demons, but that has a positive relationship with mental health. And then there's another uh, quote here I want to read that uh, really drives home their their findings. The SEM results also suggest that the negative associations of demon belief and mental health cannot be explained by reverse causal influences. Mental health has no apparent statistically significant effect on later changes in belief in demons. Our results suggest that the main direct non-spurious causal influence between those two variables is from belief in demons to declining mental health. So this is interesting. I, this is where I, I sort of come up with my own theory that I am probably not going to write a research paper on. Okay. But I'm curious what you think and then what also the audience thinks. Okay. So lining up with what we've talked about previously on the show, we have an inherent cognitive dissonance here, right? At least with Christianity, I think. The Christian God that you and I are familiar with. And, and that's also something we should note is that this is a study, because it was conducted in the United States, most of the respondents self-identified as Christian. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't it stand to reason that if you believed in a Christian God, you would also believe in demons per the Bible, right? Now, that gets in what I was saying before and how you were talking about it, sort of the lunch tray metaphor, right? Uh-huh. That you sort of take pieces um, you, we think of it as being like, well, if you're Christian, you believe in, in a loving God and you believe in demons, you believe in everything that's written in the holy book, right? But not necessarily, right? Um, and so, but the, it, let's, let's continue with that. If, if that's so, you've got this weird tug of war going on between the positive mental health of believing in a loving God and the negative mental health of believing in evil supernatural forces. Those are sort of, you know, causing cognitive dissonance within you. I would imagine that this manifests in questioning of faith, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that leads people to ask, why would a loving God allow these evil things to happen? <laughs> well, that, that's, that's quite a, a final question to uh, respond to there. <laughs> um, I would say that uh, one thing to keep in mind is that uh, evidence has shown that that even if cognitive dissonance is not like like just super strong in one's mind, yeah, a lot of us are going to have multiple beliefs kind of sharing the same space. Uh, I've seen this uh, written about particularly in terms of the afterlife. So an individual who follows a you know Christian tradition and th- they might have like three different modes. Like they they might sort of believe in ghosts, even though their faith and their their sort of their faith brain and their reason brain don't believe in ghosts. Oh but yeah, sort of a pop cultural um, idea of ghosts that still 
difficult to shake. Yeah, I totally know people who aren't religious at all who are like ghost hunters. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, it, you can your your brain has room for multiple uh, interpretations uh, of the same thing. Now, uh, the first question uh, that you ask is uh, it, it's kind of deceptively complex, uh, isn't it? Because uh, you put your if you put your faith in an ancient text like the Bible. Yeah. There's generally a certain amount of selective interpretation or selective reading involved. Uh, to say nothing about the, the sort of curated selective interpretation based on uh, the particulars of your faith, the faith leaders, translators, new and old, etc. So to, to what extent after, you know, a- after everything, are demons in the gospel literal? Are they figurative? Are they misinterpretations of mental illness? Right. Uh, and if we do confront the fact that uh, religious faith is a selective uh, invocation, uh, should we n- just not go all the way out with it, right? Should we just cast out the bad, all the negative aspects of religion that get in the way of improving your life? Um, and this kind of comes back to the the salad bars, uh, lunchroom tray scenario yeah. that, that I keep keep thinking of. The idea that you're either you're either choosing what you decide to put in your brain and into your personal worldview, or you're deciding what you want to scrape away after additional um, additional information has come to light and additional uh, you know life experiences have occurred. Um, that's my personal take, anyway. Is that you? We, we all. We all are, are, are tinkering with our worldview. We're all selectively um, adding or or uh, removing things from our religious faith. So why not just create the ideal edit? Why not take yeah. out all the negative stuff, cast the demons aside, cast the hell aside, uh, just use those elements that are going to have a beneficial effect on your worldview? Uh, I, yeah. I think it's entirely entirely possible for most people. Yeah, I do too. And I like I look at it. You know, I, I pull back the lens and I kind of look at the world around me, and I see there's this struggle, sort of religiously, between like fundamentalism and then what what fundamentalists see as sort of a hypocritical Christians, right? Like the who are not practicing everything by the book, literally. Uh, but then what is by the book? It, yeah. it brings me back to the the preacher on The Simpsons asking Ned right. Flanders. He said, have you, re- have you actually read this book? Technically, we're not allowed to do anything, right? <laughs> right, right. Well, yeah, exactly. And and I guess I think about it more as like the lunch tray metaphor that you're talking about. That's self-care, mm-hmm. right? It, because if you, you take the lessons from that uh, that work for you – that allow you to have positive mental health that make you feel good about yourself in the world around you. Don't make you cynical like me. Uh, then, mm-hmm. then that seems to be a good thing, right? Um, whereas like if you take this very strict interpretive view that it seems like from this paper's findings, that's when you lead to, you may be following it by the letter, but you're subsequently making yourself unhappy and maybe yeah. dysfunctional. <laughs> yeah, I, I always go back to this uh, this one like Bible study encounter I had when I was in junior high, and I, I forget even how it came up. But I we were talking about one thing, and we had the, this uh, this older member of the, the church who was giving the the youth talk there. And I was asking about the book of Revelations. I was saying, well, what's this about this multi-headed dragon? How right. does this come into play? You and I were similar kids. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and this guy was like, like, don't even worry about that. Like, yeah. he, like he was like pretty much straight up. Just don't read the book of Revelation. What does that have to do with anything? Yeah. And at the time I was like, oh man, that sucks. I want to talk about the dragons and the demons and all the cool stuff that occurs. But I find that, 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 that his view is, is more in keeping with the way I, I currently approach uh, models of religious faith. Yeah. Yeah. I think about my dad who I've talked on this show a little bit about before. And like, you know, my father is is has become more religious and and sort of more strictly interpretive as he gets older. Mm -hmm. And like I I mentioned that last year, he thought the world was going to end for sure in October because there were like specific conspiracy theory sites that he went to that lined up all this language from the Bible that really pointed to October of 2016 as being the time, you know, Mm -hmm. um, and and he he looks at the book of revelations and he he tries to sort of decode it right and all of that seems to make him unhappy 
Like it's obsessive in a way. And like he's trying to figure out what the answers to the world are. It's again, it's the whole cultural context thing, right? Like mm-hmm. how does this piece of, of culture tell me how this world works around me? Because everything's so chaotic. Like I remember, um, w- one of the things he used to talk to me about when I was a kid was like, Oh, well clearly whenever it references like a swarm of locusts in revelation, what that actually means is like a, a, battalion of army helicopters because if you were john and you were teleported into the future and you saw helicopters you would think they were giant locusts okay so So, it was stuff like that no i see i see what you're saying yeah i I think that that lines up uh, exactly what we're talking about here to what extent are 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 these details of one's uh, religion uh going to have a, a negative effect on just the way you interact with the world and your expectations of the world. Yeah. So back to the study, the authors actually, they found that the literature on spiritual warfare, meaning the religious literature, and, and they looked at a lot of Pentecostal stuff, mm-hmm. that allowed these beliefs to actually coexist. So I'm, I was talking about the cognitive dissonance of them coexisting, but they said, hey, sometimes the texts can actually make these things coexist. Um, so believers in a loving God can still experience negative events, which validate their idea that demonic forces can act in powerful and unpredictable ways to disrupt their lives. They were also confused by one of their results. They said previous studies have found that people who say religion and spirituality are important to them have fewer depressive symptoms, but they found a negative relationship where it was a predictor of future changes in mental health. They didn't have enough analysis to be comfortable including any of that in the conclusions from their results. But they said this was kind of an odd little blip that popped up when we were crunching the numbers. Other thing, they they did want to recognize there's a bunch of limitations to this study. This is one of those studies that's really good in that, like at the end, it says, here's all the problems with our study. Hey, please go replicate it and try to uh, rectify these problems that we weren't able to. So. They said that they would have liked broader measures of mental health in the survey, obviously. Also, the study was limited to young adults, and therefore they didn't gather any data on middle-aged and older adults, so they weren't really able to tell whether or not the negative relationship persists in older age, although from previous literature it seems like it doesn't. Uh, and then finally, like I said earlier, the study was only conducted in the U.S., so... Christianity is the dominant religion here. Yes, there were other religions that were represented in the survey, but not in the way that they would be if we were conducting this internationally. Yeah, and and it's worth driving home that there's still plenty of room for anxiety concerning supernatural evil uh, and the afterlife and the the judgmental aspects of one's God or pantheon in uh, in various religions throughout the world. Like I, I often come back to Tibetan uh, Buddhism as, a, as an example of this, where we often have this this sort of uh, academic Western view of it, yeah. where we just think of oh this this you know wonderful art, fascinating system, and it is a fascinating uh, system. And the, and the art is wonderful, but we often have this more spiritual interpretation of it that is a bit removed from uh, what I understand to, understand to be a more common Tibetan uh, interpretation of it, where it's more it's it's more anxiety based. There's mm-hmm. more of this. There's a lot of energy that goes into worrying over your transition to the next. Uh, uh, phase in the, in the in the wheel of life. Yeah, I guess at this point in my particular life, like trying to figure out how the world works is less important to me than trying to figure out how to be healthy and functional. Mm-hmm. Um, now I'm interested, obviously, in the other stuff. Otherwise, I wouldn't do a show like this. But you know, there has to be a balance there. Now I want to ask the audience, and I, mean, I don't know if there's an answer apparent right here in front of us, but. Why do you think it is that this this thing, belief in demons, is the strongest predictor of future changes in somebody's mental health? That's really curious to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I'm, we've definitely presented our subjective experiences here. I know from listeners writing into us in the past when we do demonology episodes, they've got a lot of experiences with this, too. So I'm, I'm just I'm been interested. Yeah. Plus, you know, I want to hear from anyone, you know, pe- people out there who are faithful to varying degrees tell me how do how how does belief in demons factor into your personal belief system and can can you can you actually argue that they benefit your religious worldview in any way aside from sort of the classic well if i believe in this i have to believe in this but what if you didn't have to believe in b along with a 
could you discard it and still have this system work for you? I've always thought of it, you know, especially based on my experience with, um, with, uh, being, uh, going to that Southern Baptist school when I was a little kid, mm-hmm. it's like the electric chair of religion, right? It's like this deterrent, um, that's built into the very identity of it, right? It's like, if you don't do the right thing, this will happen to you. Yeah. Which, um, yeah, but that's, that was how it was always taught to me. It was like, mm-hmm. if you are not a good Christian and you don't let your soul be saved, then you will become possessed and you will murder your family. Yeah. And this, this gets into the, like the larger philosophical question, right? Do yeah. people, are people good because there's a payoff for being good or are they only good because there is some, um, uh, supernatural or or real physical force there to make them behave. Yeah, and that remains a, an open question of, of discussion with strong arguments for the ages. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, if you want to write us in and talk to us more about demons, we'd love that. We are all over the place on social media. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. We're on Tumblr, and we are on Instagram. You also can find all of the links to those sites on stufftoblowyourmind.com. That's where we've got blog posts. It's where we've got our videos. It's where all that monster stuff that I was telling you about that Robert's composed over the years lives. And every single podcast. All right, and uh, if you want to get in touch with us the old-fashioned way, shoot us an email at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Thank you.